Hello and welcome to Venturing in Climate. Venturing in Climate is a podcast which shines a light on the entrepreneurs and investors tackling climate change. It's hosted by me, Henry Hamilton. Today, we have Rob Trezona, a founding partner of Kiko Ventures, a $450 million evergreen climate technology investment platform backed by IP Group. Rob has been working in the clean tech space since 2000, began his career as a hydrogen fuel cell scientist. Hello, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Henry. Rob, I would love to kick things off by just hearing about your journey into the world of venture capital and climate technology investing. Yeah, thanks. We as a team at Kiko all come from a technical background, but I think my colleagues would describe me as the most geeky sort of science obsessed person in the team. So I started having done a PhD in material science, which is a, a sort of discipline I've always loved. I started as a scientist working on hydrogen fuel cells and I, it was a combination of I'm quite a visual person and, and in choosing sort of what to do at university, I just was fascinated by the ability to through changing how you make something, change its structure to change how it behaved and the ability to go through iteration loops and then look at, look at the material, look at how it degraded, look at how it performed and improve and have real impacts. I've always been interested as a, as a science person in, in application. So it was an, it's a very nice sort of discipline from a sort of LEDs and solar, solar cells and fuel cells all rely on material science. So great to study the subject and then really going straight into a job where I used to have a periodic table mouse mat and I used to love the fact that I used that data every day <laughs> in, in, my, in my first and, and second job. So I, I, was work, I was fascinated by electrochemistry and this kind of new way of making an energy, well, stay new, but the first fuel cells were, were in the 19th century. But at that time, this is the, this is the early 2000s, the potential for fuel cells to be a really important part of, of clean energy was coming through. You'd had a, a lot of work done by Ballard to really popularize the approach. And I had the opportunity to work on some of the early concepts in that space and really just invent things, you know, invent new, new electrodes, new electrolytes, improve efficiencies, and, and really see progress being made. In this country, the UK is pretty good at electrochemistry. In this country, John Goodenough, who's an American scientist, but was working at Oxford when he invented the, the cathode for the lithium-ion battery. A lot of the fundamental work around fuel cells and electrolysis was done uh, in this country. So this country with institutions like, say, Imperial College, Oxford, Cambridge, etc., is an, an academic leader in that space. And so for me, starting out, it was an amazing sort of environment to do what I thought was some really meaningful work. And quite quickly, I ended up in venture-backed organizations. Um, so, so my, my second job after starting up Johnson Math in their fuel cell business unit was, was Series Power, where I joined as employee number five. Uh, and that was an amazing experience where you had a kind of venture-backed company that was heading towards an IPO in that early window in the kind of clean tech 1.0 uh, and trying to deliver technical results that underpinned a value story towards towards a listing long narrative around that company and the public capital markets but what i saw was a lot of talent and enthusiasm and appetites but also some misunderstanding of what it really takes to commercialize these technologies how you manage a business like that how you develop a strategy that that incorporates what the market really wants and what capital markets might need. And that really drove my interest in, in sort of where does the capital come from? Because even working as a scientist, I, I led the, the fuel cell team. 
there was a constant dialogue around what the investors needed and what the investors wanted and 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 how we how we you know get this ipo to happen so as a scientist doing work i found really exciting i was already being impacted by the perspectives of of venture capitalists and, and other equity investors through a number of different different steps so having decided to leave series power for various reasons moved to McKinsey, which was a fantastic general business sort of education, then Carbon Trust, where I sort of led their accelerator program, which was in between, you know, public policy, innovation and, and capital. And then finally joining IP Group 11 years ago, really wanted to understand how do you develop a technology? How do you provide the appropriate shape of capital for these type of hardware technologies that we really need for a, for a zero carbon future? And finally, arriving at IP Group 10, 11 years ago, this evergreen capital source that the group has, in my view, has the type of characteristics that we need for technologies like that. So mm -hmm. almost a sort of start as a scientist, oh, this is a problem, which means I can't do the stuff I want to do because we're constantly having to sort of deliver results for these you know, mythical investors. Okay, well, what investors really need? This seems to be an essential part of, part of the solution. So now ending up here, where I'm on the other side of the table providing capital, but informed by that 20 year journey, understanding what it's like to be in the lab, understanding the uncertainties and, and, and you know, how to prioritize the different, you know, very limited resources. So, and I, when I look at anything today, you know, we're very busy now with, with a very full pipeline. I'm always thinking back to, to that sort of the, the people developing this technology that we're funding and, and how that journey informs structuring, you know, funding around the milestones, the co-investors, the, the timings, the risks. So it's fairly comprehensive, I guess. The other characteristic as well as being a technology geek is I think being strategic is something I feel like I had, had the luxury to be. We have this mm -hmm. long-term patient cap at Kiko and that allows you just, just to think, you know, yeah. what would you do with this technology? So, so my career and indeed the way we think about investing is, is also quite long-term and strategic. How do you find going from scientists and you know, really being very, very technical to being on the other side of the table? Do you miss that, that sort of creativity in the lab? Yes, the sort of power you have where you can go in and just create something is it's a real privilege to be part of it. It is hard and a lot of it is quite dull. I, I think people who haven't done this work but watch TV shows assume that, you know, it's all very rapid and, and the clock speed is is measured in, in sort of, I don't know, minutes. The clock speed can be measured in months yeah. where you're trying to create a new catalyst or a new process, a new electrolyte. It's a lot of mundane work and you're very focused on a on a the particular solution set that you're funded to work on. And you could discover that some policy decision made by senior officials in China invalidates your entire 10 year of work, yeah. which has happened to friends of mine working in say thin form solar. So it, it, the, you, the losing the ability to create something is, is if you like compensated by the portfolio kind of view I now have. And yeah. so a lot of what we do is, is talking to people around, if you're going to spend this time on this research or on this approach, make sure you understand the broader context what customers really need super early on we're having that conversation i'm already going off script here and it's only been a few minutes so yeah. I've really one or two questions but just picking up on something what you said there it sounds like you know actually as a scientist you've realized that 
the time and the return requirement on time that investors have is actually basically a, a factor which maybe we're not giving them enough importance to. And so IP Group, where you, you know, you've worked for 11 years and now Kiko, the fact that you're an evergreen fund, and maybe you could just help you know, explain what that is for listeners, but the fact that you're an evergreen fund actually provides <coughs> you so much more power to, to be creative over time and actually face and solve some really big problems. It is. And there's some several aspects to time. So there's the absolute amount of time really required. Depending on what it is, that can be up to 20 years. And we have an investment in a, in a fusion company and that's 30 or 40 years. So one of the things we're trying to be, what we can do as relatively experienced people is well, yes, we've had some good success stories, but they've taken 15 years, 20 years. And when you accept that coming into some of these situations, you behave very differently. And as a scientist, you know, the mathematics is not that complicated. You've got, if you don't think you'll exit for 15 years, the initial capital you put in is incredibly expensive as it compounds up. So you have to think very, very carefully about where to spend money, how to spend money, how to use, you know, for example, non-dilutive grant funding and other people's capital. Mm. So that, that fundamentally affects what we do. And the, the balance sheet structure allows us to not have, not only not have a, 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 a time frame. So it's not, it, it's an evergreen sort of platform in our case, using the balance sheet of our P group is a pool of capital where the providers of capital. So in our case, shareholders and IP group don't have their returns tied to the underlying assets. So we're using money that, that comes off the public capital markets. If people want their, their capital back, they can just sell their shares. And the reverse is also true. The underlying assets then progress over time and we'll, we'll exit it whatever time it might be, but there's no fundamental connection between the provision of capital and, and the, uh, the money we're investing. So that allows you to, to get into long time frame sort of investments. But it's not just the, the long time frame, it's the ability to be flexible. So if you look at a conventional LPGP fund structure, it's got a defined end date, so maybe 10 years plus an extension of a couple of years. But it's also got a defined investment period. So, so the people providing the money, the LPs, will say, look, you know, here's 100 million from the five of us LPs, and we expect most of that to be invested in the first three, four years in an investment period with some reserves for follow-ons. And that works well for certain types of companies, but when you're doing assist investment, fuel sales, or obviously fusion, carbon capture, it's not just that they're longer than that 10 plus two timeframe. It's that actually coming back to the original point about the really high cost of the initial capital, your investment profile is small, 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 small. And maybe in year five, six, seven, eight, you may or indeed may not start deploying more capital once you've de-risked it. So it's the flexibility of the profile of the capital as well as the exit timescale that, that we have with this balance sheet structure. And when you sit down and speak to entrepreneurs, particularly if they're experienced about that difference, you see people's eyes light up because it, it means that what they want and we want is, is to maximize the value. What typically happens is, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of conventional fund. Yes, I want to maximize value up until, you know, We've got it. The money's got to go in between now and 2025. And yeah. I've got to get it out again by 2032. And that immediately creates a misalignment of interest. And now almost all the capital in venture and in, in clean tech is, is funds. Funds do a great job. But for the stuff that we are looking to do, we, we're trying to be additional and helpful to the ecosystem. 
there are certain situations where that 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 structure is is unhelpful and so it's it's about yes you know one of our values is look beyond tomorrow sort of have this long-term perspective but also be super flexible and if in year eight the company needs a 50 million pound round and we do 15 million of that we can do that and that's you know quite unusual and something we're quite excited about being able to sort of do more of with kiko that's really exciting and, and a huge asset to you know, both the founders and, and the business. But I guess it's something, an area that I've been yeah, more and more aware of now. So there's quite a lot of new and existing climate tech funds and a lot of them are trying to get, you know, we're solving a very big problem and we need new technologies and we do need investment into heavier R&D stuff. But so maybe some of the fund structures do make that much more pressurized from both an investor and an entrepreneur's perspective. And that can present some challenges. Yeah. I think it probably will come to, to light at some stage, but it's a bit of a tough one. Yeah, and I, I think what we're seeing now is an explosion of interest in the space and some mainstream players like BlackRock, Tomasek, General Atlantic coming into the space. Breakthrough Energy Ventures, who are themselves an unusual structure. So the world's moved on and we're not the only people trying to innovate. Emeralds also have a sort of evergreen structure. So we're hugely encouraged that there is innovation around the actual financing structures in venture. And it's good because it makes the entire ecosystem healthier. It also creates competition and, and that, you know, really encourages us to keep upping our game. So we're starting in a really exciting place. We are far from done you know, in terms of the overall requirements to get to, get to net zero. So there'll be a huge role for innovation and scaling these technologies. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, is be part of an ecosystem. And so I guess another, another aspect around Kiko and why it's so valuable to have this really clear climate focused brand is this is about collaboration and creating networks of people working together. And that's key to what we're doing. So we, we really have quite a big network of co-investors as we're building out the platform and indeed having more and more cash hungry companies we want to collaborate more and more you know not necessarily formally but frequently in an efficient way with the rest of the ecosystem and i think being the people with the kind of longest dated money is helpful so we, we might do something I, I have conversations with investors where i said look we found this pick a new area methane capture really exciting in about three years time it'll be ready <laughs> for a series <laughs> a we'll keep you up to date and that's because we can put money in super early on small amounts of capital to de-risk some of the key tech risks and then we'll, we might you know well go to you know friends we know in funds and say right i think we're now in range for, for what you have in terms of your mandate and probably i'm having half a dozen conversations each week with people who have recently raised capital in the space and it's just a very efficient right Great, congratulations on the raise. What's the mandate? Which which areas, ticket size and constraints? Yeah. And we're just pitch, patching that all together. And they're doing the same with us. So that's really, really encouraging. And then just to put some numbers on it, there was a, a big clean tech boom in the 2000s, which peaked really in 2000. I think in that year, it was about five, $6 billion of venture capital was raised into funds. Last year, 2021, it was 21 billion. So, so this is much bigger now than, yeah. than there's that sort of, you know, peak in the mid 2000s. And the difference between kind of now and then is we've got clean technologies, wind and solar, primarily increasingly batteries that are now cheaper than the fossil alternatives. And we have genuine commitment to net zero from the world of business and finance. So whilst, you know, when lots of capital piles into a space, you do get sort of supply and demand pricing pressures 
But what we're not going to see, we don't think, is the same absolute crash that we had in post the financial crisis in the early 2010s. Uh, and all, all this capital that's come in, you know, is going into companies where there are big customers at the end. Yeah. In the case of technology, it's mostly corporates. And being part of that, you know, sort of mega trend is really exciting. Just on that question then, climate tech or clean tech 1.0 at the sort of peaked in 2008. I mean, this is a broad question. What were you thinking the main reasons behind why that was the peak? And then it dropped off to that. Yeah, I think there was sort of maybe three things there. The first was people moving into the space without an understanding for, of the time scales and requirements. So I met a lot of the people on the West Coast who had raised, you know, Clive Perkins Green Tech Fund, Cosmo Ventures, Vantage Point, and they'd all been very successful in, you know, dot-com businesses and, and, you know, Web 1.0, Web, web 2.0. The thinking and the frameworks they had for those businesses were just not appropriate for these hardware businesses. So the expectations around milestones and timescales were just wrong. And yeah. it wasn't, to be fair to all those, you know, passionate, committed people. It wasn't like there was a body of knowledge on how to do it either. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was just wrong because there was naivety and inexperience. So the first thing was sort of, you know, hey, here's my tin from solar business. And they tell me they'll be prof profitable in three years. Oh, that's reasonable. And, and that's now changed. So that was, that, that was the first piece. Second piece was the use of GPLP fund structures almost exclusively. And as just discussed, that works in some situations, but not for some of these uh, deep tech hardware plays. And the third piece was there wasn't actually commercial demand. So if you look at some of the thin film solar and, and biofuels plays, even if they'd worked in terms of you know, massive biorefineries that cost a billion dollars each, people would not have paid the, the price premium for a green fuel. There, yeah. there just actually wasn't the demand in the, in the sort of late 2000s. So those three factors combined to kill it. There's this famous paper out of MIT in 2014, which isn't quite called this, but it's not like clean tech is dead paper. And this is a pretty good chronicling of, yeah. So we, we know Varun Sivarun pretty well. So he's one, and he and I have a few conversations about it. And I think they, they, they document all the data pretty well. Um, and I think our response is all three of those, those factors either have been fixed by the fact that you now green electrons from wind and solar just are now the cheapest source of primary energy and net zero and, and so really the Paris Climate Change Conference rippling through to large corporations and the whole financial services sector, banks, et cetera, are all now lined up. And it, it's, it's, it's a very different world for, from, from kind of very optimistic, you know, John Doerr, you know, Ted yeah. Talk, you know, it's going to be bigger than the internet, all that stuff. That was, <laughs> that was driven by hope rather than facts. And, and now we have a, a much better informed ecosystem. Really interesting. Before we get on to more of that, can I just ask you why, why climate? What is it about climate and fighting that that really makes you passionate? Yeah, it's sort of, it's almost like I, I People ask me this question and, and I, my response is, why wouldn't you work on the existential threat to human civilization? I think a lot of people almost don't want to learn too much about these risks because it's, it's so scary and it feels so, people feel so powerless. So when I have conversations with friends who don't work in the sector, pretty quickly, I start to talk about IPCC reports and extreme weather events and, and, and you know, you know, 35 degree wet bulb temperatures, and they just they just shut down. It's actually a, a very difficult thing to work on 
and remain optimistic. So I understand a lot of people just, just oh, this seems terrifying, uh, mm. but my life seems okay, so I'll just carry on. Uh, I think when I was trying to choose a job uh, you know, in, in the year 2000, I, it, it seemed obvious to me that here was something I, I with skills in material science could genuinely contribute to, whereas other job offers I had in investment banking and consulting weren't working on an important problem. I remember one of the consultancy firms that I had a job offer from said, oh, we're setting up this new division in, 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 in mobile telecoms. And, you know, we're offering you know, really high salaries and equity and all sorts of stuff. You, you know, here's your offer. And I said, I don't want to work on those things. And they, they were just flabbergasted that I didn't want to work in what they saw was a hot sector. And I thought, well, mobile telecoms are going to happen anyway. And I don't, it doesn't seem to be the most important problem. But I remember feeling really kind of lonely that you sort of, nobody else in my kind of, you know, graduating friendship group seemed to think this was important, but I couldn't switch it off. I couldn't sort of sit there and say, ah, shucks, you know what? Yeah, Svante Arrhenius wasn't right in 1898 and shouldn't worry about it. Let, let's go and make extra money for Vodafone. I, I just couldn't do it. So, yeah, yeah it's almost like I, I feel like I'm a, the sort of one person who doesn't understand why I, everyone else isn't working on climate change given it, it could end human civilization. No, so, I shout out to you, actually. Yeah, it's it's initially interesting to hear your thoughts, though. So, awesome, just to quickly go through what, you know, your ticket size, obviously it varies quite a lot. You've, you've shared about, you know, time horizons, but a bit more about key conventions, what you look for, you know, what, what that requires yeah. and what entrepreneurs should know about you. Yeah, the, the good questions. Let's start with ticket size. It's actually, it's a very pragmatic, practical thing, but it, it reveals quite a lot. And, and we talk about being super flexible, but in reality, most of the deals actually fall into a couple of categories. The super early stage things we're doing plus minus, but call it a million pounds, dollars, or less the same. And that would be around, this is really interesting in terms of a technology proposition, mostly out of universities, but now we're broadening out a bit. And, but how do we sort of de-risk? What are, what are the key things that not just us, you as a founder need to know before you commit 10 years of your life to it? So we do a lot of 1 million tickets into companies like Box CCU, which we, which we announced today, Barrakal in Cambridge. So that, that's one type of ticket. And that's an initial investment in a company where we're basically venture building. Uh, and then we'll follow on, you know, all the way through. Some of those companies work, work out, but a one that does work might have, you know, that will be a seed round that we'll lead with our million ticket, 5 million series A, 10 million series B, and we keep investing so we're not just a seed investor we'll do the series a the series b etc there's a typically a point in any of these businesses where you've actually addressed those you know the key technical risks to our satisfaction and and that might be before the wider market has appreciated it and there's also real evidence of market pull which for us is typically you know corporates saying actually we need this to decarbonize cement or steel or whatever it might be that will typically then be larger tickets from us because that's that's the sort of round where we'll drive a lot of our actual financial return. And then if things are going well, you know, these companies might have seven, eight funding rounds before they exit. We're backing off again at very large valuations when you've got you know more strategic capital coming in, some of the sovereign wealth, some of the institutional investors. So there's a kind of fusion of, of capital and max ticket sizes. Historically, the largest has been one round 10 million, 11 million pounds. We can do more. And, and if we got religion on something, we, we might do more. But from a sort of 450 million capital base, we're probably not going to, we're not going to be writing 50 million, you know, checks. So that, that's the sort of 
early stage, you know, we venture built it out of some research model. We are now also as part of the Kiko mandate doing at slightly later stage deals. And so let's, let's initial ticket size of say 5 million into a series A or a series B. And we're doing that because there's a lot of innovation that doesn't come out of university labs where people have transformative either business models or sort of data set and where we think we can really add value and be additional. We're looking at a number of those situations. So initial ticket of five, but again, we, we, we can and will follow on in the, in those companies. And, and one of the things that we have as Kiko and more broadly as IP group is, is lots of flexibility. So for some of these situations where part of the business model of an asset is to, you know, of a company is to roll out assets, we can provide credit. So what, and we've said this as part of our sort of comms is if the right thing to do is help you raise your initial financing for pilot, pilot plants or deployments, and that helps our equity story, we absolutely can do that. We haven't got LPs, we haven't got those constraints. So getting into lending is, is an interesting model in terms of being really flexible. Yeah, We haven't done a lot of it, but we have the capability. We've, we've done one already, uh, so we have, so have some experience. And the final piece in terms of ticket size and approach is we'll, be, we'll do a selective number of fund of funds investments. So part of how do we generate primarily deal flow is to support people with really differentiated seed and accelerator incubator propositions. And we've just done the first of those, which we'll announce in about a month's time. So it's a sort of evolution from the IP group model of, you know, really working on super early stage university spinouts to also back highly scalable series A, B businesses and couple that with a degree of, of fund to fund investing to drive additional sort of opportunities where we can really then provide more capital in, into some of those seed fund companies. Is it, in terms of Kiko, do you look at having sort of a sector diversification model? Is there like set parameters you have there? And how many investments are you actually making per, per annum? So we can ask around themes and sectors a lot with a very long time frame. So we're really thinking about building Kiko over the next 20 years. Different sectors will come in and out of focus in that time frame. So we know people who are, you know, have funds only focused on hydrogen or only focused on carbon, or they have a fund where they've got three three fixed areas. With timescales and flexibility we have, we, we don't want to do that, but we will develop sort of thematic deep dives. So hydrogen is one where we have had a lot of success and we have and so we're carrying on in that space. And we're now looking at other sectors. So an area we're sort of interested in now and starting to look hard at deals in is energy production and efficiency around the home, which is event driven to some extent around Ukraine, but it's also just been needed for, you know, for decades, little has happened. That sector will scale, not, you know, many people are looking into it. We think it's still only in the foothills of where it will get to. Uh, so so I, I think this whole domestic energy space is is going to be a huge industry and I think we'll end up doing, but what we're trying to do now is, is work, where do we add value? Where, where does having the super flexible long-term capital really make a difference in that sector? So we're doing research in that space right now and that'll then turn into a, a, a clutch of investments. Are we talking domestic energy storage? Are we talking, you know, heat pumps? What are we thinking here? So we're looking at all those things. And the question is, because it's busy and there are lots of people, is, is where does 
who we are as Kiko really add value. And uh, as I said, particularly having the ability to do asset finance as well. So yes, those things are in scope, caveated by the issues that people who know the space well, you know, will, will tell you about, you know, decision-making by consumers occupants is, is a challenge. So your skill set in terms of scaling is different from the B2B stuff that we've done before, plus regulation. So anything in the domestic space is influenced by policy in the broader sense. So what are the regulations, but also just broader sort of policy things around supply chains and skill bases and installers. So there's a lot to sort of think through to pick businesses that are really going to scale. And some of the factors that might, you know, lead to success or failure are in the hands of national grid, say, or Ofgem or, you know, the German government. So it's getting that right. And I, I you know, to so use say hydrogen as a case study, we did a lot of thinking around hydrogen in 2017, 18, 19, around its role to decarbonize hard to abate sectors, anticipated that there would be at least policy and now some legislation around that, and then made a bunch of investments in that space. And it's which areas, it, we haven't invested in it, all, all aspects of hydrogen, but we picked a, a certain number of spaces where we thought there was a specific need. And I think if, at, you know, the way we're looking now at, at sort of domestic energy, it's what are the things, given the policy context and really focusing on Europe, which is where, you know, it's, it's kind of our home, can scale and we can add value to. We have one investment already, so Mixergy, which is digital heat. It's a very clever play around starting with very simple assets in, in direct heated, you know, water, water cylinders, but moving into heat pumps. And so that's our first investment in, in that space. And then we'll... You know, assuming we like this theme, we don't make any commitments, we could decide to forget all that and invest it in, I don't know, electric you know, transport. If we're happy with the theme, we'll then do a, a clutch of investments around Mixergy. And if you look at what, we, what we've done in sort of hydrogen and, and alternative fuels, we've got, you know, we think one of the best of our fuel cell companies with now an exit in series power. We've invested in ammonia with Sunborn, which is a derivative of hydrogen. We invested in what we think is the world's best electrolyzer company in ISATA and announced today we've got um, e-fuels, single step synthesis out of Oxford. So a clutch of, of companies based on doing research, a lot of it with the Energy Transitions Commission from 2018 onwards. And, and so I don't know what we'll be investing in 2028 because the, the policy landscape will, will to a large extent affect that. And we couldn't have predicted the invasion of Ukraine. So, but, you know, we're now doing the work in terms of research around that domestic piece and, and it's likely we'll do a number of additional investments in that space. But will it be heat pumps? Maybe you know, we've done one in Barakal, which is a, a platform technology. Will we do more? We'll see. And again, unlike people with kind of fixed mandates, we don't have to do any of these areas. It's always around compelling opportunity and our ability to really make a difference to a company's trajectory and, and likelihood of success. That's fascinating. You've mentioned hydrogen there. What Obviously, there's many differing views on when we can get there with hydrogen, <clears throat> what applications it has. Can you help, you know, with your with your expertise, can you help us understand a bit more about, you know, the timelines, the applications, and the particular areas of interest, you think, for venture capitalists in this space? Yeah, yeah so, so hydrogen was where I started my career. I used to sit in a lab with an electrolyzer in the corner and, and, and make fuel cell electrodes. There was really around how do we, you know, make clean transport and it was more carb people caring about sort of toxic emissions than it really was carbon. So I've sort of had a long perspective on this. 
we'd stopped looking at hydrogen as as, as IP because we were concerned, and this is Steve Chu's famous three miracles, that it just looked unlikely. The thing that changed all that was Paris and then the IPCC 2018 net zero report, which says you've got to beat net zero. And all these people who thought they were part of the residual emissions that would be allowed suddenly realized they had to change their industries. And so hydrogen exists today, as far as in our perspective, because of net zero, and then you need hydrogen for the hard to abate sectors. So things like steel and shipping with ammonia, you just need hydrogen for any practical solution. And then that means that assuming we get there and net zero as possible, we will create a large industry around this commodity. And then there are additional applications which come into focus off the back of the hard to abate sectors. So that's kind of the framework that we use. And you know, what we've seen then is a lot of other people seeing opportunity. We think the reason it's so exciting is, is here is a completely new front in clean tech. So wind and solar have been around for a while, batteries coming through, very exciting, EVs. Hydrogen did not exist really as a sector before 2018 in any large sense. You know, the global production of electrolysis in 20, 2019 was 0.1 gigawatts. And most of that was from China, 60% China. So it was a tiny industry. And then bang, you know, 2019, you see all these electrolyzer startups being funded. So, and it's new, there is, there is, you know, everyone's growing, the demand's growing rapidly. So, so the reason everyone's so excited about it is this is a whole new vector in the economy and it looks stable, it looks like it's needed and you've got all these serious players involved in it. Having said that, is it overhyped? Yes. Is it going to be harder than we think? Yes. Are some of these projections of, you know, it keeps going up, you know, 200 gigawatts of electrolyzers by 2030. People just add numbers and, you know, people want to sell research reports. So let's have an even bigger number that we can, you know, we can torture a spreadsheet and add up <laughs> some announced projects and it looks even larger. So, so we're not going to get anywhere near that level of deployment. There are multiple reasons for that. A fairly tangible reason is just the supply chain. So you, Electrolyzer Company, may well have been able to raise X hundred million to build a gigafactory, you know, in Germany or wherever it's going to be. But the people who provide the steel, and it's not just any grade of steel that's, you know, who you probably were talking to, you'd phone up once a year and say, can I have a couple of bipolar plates? And they gradually make them for you. You phone up and say, oh, I've got orders for two gigawatts of electrolyzers. And, and so you've got to invest upstream in the supply chain in big presses and coating rigs and so on. And how convinced are you that this, this you know, 200 person startup that's loss making is really going to, you know, it, it's just that supply chain, supply chains have inertia, that's real. And then when you add on the pandemic and inflation, there's a whole bunch of like anchoring that will just make these things unachievable, even in China. So we are anticipating a correction where people will just start to say, where are they all? What's happening to this project? The news from ITM, you know, just came out in terms of, you know, missed revenue targets is an example of the correction starting starting to happen. We'll have to ride it out. It's a bit unfortunate. It's not, though, going to be a complete crash because people aren't going to move away with all the scientific knowledge we have around the climate from being committed to get to net zero. You talk to the Orsteds, the SNAMs, the BPs, the, the Arsenal Metals, they're all committed now. H2 Green Steel only exists to make, you know, so all these companies are predicated now on the availability of hydrogen. It's just going to be slower. And I just think 
it'll take a while before that comes through. There'll be a bit of a correction in the sector. For us as, as patient investors, we see that we probably have some value to continue to invest at the time when everyone's moved on to, I don't know, space-based solar or some other new, new trendy thing. So it's going to happen, but it's going to be slow. And I guess the reason we invested in Hisata is it's a polymeric stack. It's also it's very, very high efficiency, which is a, a great proposition, but it's the scalability of that hardware that is also massively exciting. And, and you can, you know, you don't have the same constraints. You know, it's an early stage company with the attendant risks, but we made that investment in full knowledge that we were about to go past the peak in terms of, of the hype cycle for hydrogen. And there'd be a lot of unhappy you know, large corporate customers um, who feel that, that the sector's disappointed again, um, mm. but it, it will come. And, and, you know, we're seeing some derivatives like ammonia are now coming into focus where you, you get around some of the sort of logistics and storage challenges that, that you have with liquid or, or, or gaseous hydrogen. So it's a thing, it's really important. It'll take another 20 years. You know, it will, we think really eventually displace the, the kind of oil industry because why do we need hydrogen? Ultimately we need molecules for certain applications. And that's what, what sort of oil does today. And that's a huge industry. So it'll be there, but just back to the beginning, really, of, of what I've been talking about, people underestimate the timescales and that will create some short-term disruption in the market, which where, you know, we as Kiko, you know, we're anticipating that. I, I think probably from a sort of, I don't know, slightly selfish financially motivated investor point of view, there'll probably be some bargains around in about three, four years' time. I think the way we articulate that, though, is, there'll be some really good companies doing great stuff where we'll be there to support them in, you know, mid, mid century where there's probably going to be another, a clean tech dip, you know, we keep going and with, with a long-term perspective that we have. Super interesting. There is yeah, a lot, we can unpack a lot in there. That was, you know, tour de force of hydrogen in a, in a nutshell. And also it makes me think Thanks. about, makes me think about like the, you know, 20 years to properly get going with it and, you know, replacing oil. There was a lot, there's a lot that needs to happen in terms of reducing just, just general yeah. emissions before that, because 2050 is not far off, eight years after that. So be interesting, just like to talking about, I know you've got investment in sea capture. So, you know, basically removing carbon from industrial processes, it'd be, I mean, how, that's quite a hard problem. And obviously it's kind of chemistry yeah. come out of university leads, but like how efficient is that? So when you're moving carbon from, a, mm. from an industrial process, is there like, a degree that it isn't efficient. And how do you think about that? This transition, right? Yeah, we, we've alongside sea capture, which has been a, a decade-long investment. We've learned a lot about the sector. And CCS for me was a row in in an economist spreadsheet on how countries like the UK could decarbonize. So we'll, we'll do this, this, and that, and then we'll CCS the rest. And you just add it in. And oh, you know, the oil and gas companies tell me it's possible. They do it for an soil recovery. You know, when we need it, they'll be there. And of course, it hasn't really happened. It definitely hasn't happened in power. So people, you know, capture CO2 and, 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 you know, push it into oil wells, but there is no scale, you know, power CCS plant anywhere in the world. And the costs seem to be going up. So, so this starts to sort of get you into debates around what you do do with the residual coal fired power stations, particularly in Asia. That is a policy question and, and CCS is kind of intertwined with carbon pricing uh, and policy. What has always been there in the background, and actually was some early carbon trust work, is the need to use CCS for industrial point sources. And the reason there's a need is 
there's a lot of CO2 production across an industrialized economy that isn't power, where you, you can't just turn off those assets. They've all been financed by banks and they're productive and they're parts of economies. So when you start looking at it from an economically optimal point of view, having a retrofit capture of you know flue gases from industrial processes looks like the best thing to do to reduce carbon. And when you layer in the sort of TCFD and, and post-Paris requirements for net zero, a lot of companies are now saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I, yes, I, green steel, hydrogen, yes, but in the meantime, I've got all these existing assets that produce a CO2-rich stream. I'm making cement, I'm making glass. And so there's a whole range of industrial assets. Sea Capture was an early investment by us in somebody who had just a different chemistry for the, for the carbon capture, this carboxylic acid salts. Uh, and it's much more flexible in terms of the contaminants in the in the CO2 input. Seems particularly applicable to those industrial point sources. So the strategy around that company is industrial point source. Also still working with Drax on BEX, but that's a long-term project in terms of negative carb carbon emissions. So we we've sort of evolved our strategy around that company over time. Starting out with this is just really cool innovation around what we know is going to be an important industry. We, you know, we always thought the carbon capture was going to be a massive part of the low carbon economy. As we've learned more, the, the, the ability to deal with difficult inputs, a real standout characteristic. And then again, ETC and other policy work, industrial point sources are a massive thing. So that's that, that particular investment by us. More generally, I think power CCS is, is really struggling as a concept right now. And, and I don't see a lot of investment going into it for a while, although maybe in the 40s, as in the 2040s, places like India, it might be quite important. Not currently something that we see as a venture capital firm's problem. Well, generally, there's, again, piece of ETC work around carbon removal, and there is a big residual requirement to remove yeah. carbon, most of which we think is around nature-based solutions. So, so there's a broader kind of carbon piece around <clears throat> how do you deal with emissions that we can't economically get rid of with things like, you know, post-process CCS, plus how do you deal with the excess carbon that we're going to have under even the most optimistic scenario? And then to your point around how efficient are these processes, no sort of CCS process, at least post-process, post-combustion industrial process is 100% efficient. So there is always some residual carbon, but that's part of an overall kind of system view, which says, look, you know, Let's deploy CCS on cement kilns, et cetera, et cetera, as part of those companies, Lafarge, Cemex's, you know, commitment to net zero. Then there'll be some residual CO2. That is carbon removal requirements, which is, I think, where UN compasses need to go is, is sort of, there could be up to 200 gigatons of overall, not, not every year, of, of additional carbon to remove. Nature-based solutions is the first place to go. And then you get into sort of other sort of geoengineering requirements. So... Carbon for us is sort of part of an overall system and as ever really with energy, but particularly in this case, policy and regulation and carbon markets will be essential to directing capital and our investment strategy. So there is, you know, again, to use the ETC phrase, there is a limited role, limited but essential role for carbon capture. And that's quite large. It's up, up to about 10 gigatons a year. Yeah. And there's no version of the detailed models that we have that doesn't have quite a lot of carbon capture. And that can be carbon capture in use, but it'll end up being quite a lot of storage as well. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to just know an investor that inspires you. Ray Dalio, not a climate investor, but somebody who learnt 
by making mistakes, admitted the mistakes, turned them into principles, created an enduring institution. I, I think Bridgewater and you know, the principles, his book are, are, you know, in terms of investment decision-making and consistent behavior over time and building an institution really, really quite inspiring. If you could send one tweet this year, what would it be? If you tweet. In insulate Britain. Very good. Very good one. Love that. Biggest mistake founders and investors make. Biggest mistake founders make is thinking that they have to do everything and not willing to, an extension of that, a founder with a great vision can attract really talented people to that vision. And a mistake I see sometimes is really struggling to trust those people to go and do the things often with complementary skills that the founder cannot do themselves. And it's really hard. And it's not really an ego thing in, certainly in climate. It tends to be more, I say, I care about this so much. Do I trust this other person to, to really have autonomy? And uh, that's, it's not, it's, it's not sort of like, you know, the social network film. It's not that type of thing in climate. It tends to be, this has to work. I don't trust this person to, to, to sort of look after this aspect. Uh, and that's a real struggle that we have because people are very passionate uh, in our space. In terms of investors, what we do, we see people investing in, in some of these businesses who not only don't understand the technology, but aren't willing to learn. So <laughs> you're, you're three years in and something's happened. Oh, there's been a problem with the pilot or the demo and, and you know, the CTO is explaining, CEO is explaining, and the person sat next to you in the board table said, so what does that mean? And, you know, I understand not everyone's going to have a chemical engineering degree or a PhD in physics, but lack of curiosity where you've got to make a choice. Does this mean we stop working on that product line completely? Not having that as a, as a former scientist, I, I kind of always assumed that people who did tech VC loved the science and got into it. And it's, it's surprisingly rare. And because we're seeing more, you know, people come into the space now, so it's changing, but I, I've been shocked occasionally by, by people, you invest in this company, but you don't even know what the field, you don't, don't know what an anode is, you know, it, it, <laughs> that, that is, yeah, that, that, that leads to mistakes. So if you do that, you either have to sort of absent yourself from decisions that require knowing what an anode is, or you educate yourself. Uh, and, yeah. and we see people just who aren't interested, aren't, they aren't curious, they don't really care. And the climate technology that excites you most, final one. Yeah, well, I think I know the answer to this one. Wind, no wind technology. Oh. Three-blade oh. wind turbines produced by companies like Vestas and Siemens Gamesa because the biggest deployment of by investors that will make the biggest difference to getting to net zero is getting wind out there. Wind, we think in our modeling, is two-thirds of the electron production, the primary energy that we're all going to need in 2050. It's more important than solar. Offshore wind, floating offshore wind, onshore wind, it's the it's the hidden you know sort of hardworking you know underappreciated gem of clean tech, and it's it's you know those those massive machines now they are near the theoretical limit right we're close to the bets limit on, on these things they're absolutely amazing uh, and I, I love solar panels I love semiconductors all great but in terms of the, the the profile of production in most places across a year wind is just better. Um, and so, you know, we, we work closely with Vestas, love those guys. We talk to things like Misa, Shanghai Electric, you know, Envision. Wind is it's massively important. 
uh, and it, it, it's a clean technology. And, and so a company like Vestas is a startup. You know, they've only ever done wind turbines. So yeah, I, I think shout out for wind. We need windmills everywhere. We need one person in you know 50 working in the wind industry in order to get to net zero. That's the first shout out to wind. So well done, wind. I was convinced you were going to say hydrogen. So there we go. You surprised me there. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, um, thanks so much, Rob, for joining me and on the podcast today. Pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your insights. Thanks, Henry. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Cheers.